0: Our gospel lesson this day comes from the 24th chapter of Luke, starting in verse 44. Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He said to them, this is what is written that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And a change of heart and life for the forgiveness of sins must be preached in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Look, I'm sending to you what my father promised, but you are to stay in the city until you have been furnished with heavenly power. He led them out as far as Bethany, where he lifted his hands and blessed them. As he blessed them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem overwhelmed with joy. And they were continuously in the temple, praising God. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Over the last year or two, I have had some strikeouts when Laura and I sit down to watch an actual movie. I'll mark something on Amazon or Hulu that I see, telling her that it looks like a fun, romantic movie. I'll admit I give in to the romantic comedy sometimes. I like that you can kind of tell how the story is going to go. I like that it's programmed and that they'll end up together in the end. But it seems like some of the movies that pop up for me as recommended like to mess with this formula, and we don't like that one bit. There have been a few occasions where we sit down to watch the movie and the first ten minutes or so are so incredibly depressing that it's hard to imagine that this is a romantic comedy at all. Sometimes there's redemption, yes, but rarely do you finish the movie and say, that was nice. Some of them end up really depressing, an all-too-realistic depiction of real life. And we often look at each other on the couch and say, I don't need more real life. In our story today about Jesus' ascension, the disciples surprise me. I feel like the disciples should be at least a little bit melancholy, if not sad. After all, Jesus ascended into heaven, never to return to them, or at least they don't know when. This is kind of final, not the way the story was maybe supposed to go. It's surprising, and yet the disciples worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem, overwhelmed with joy, and they were continuously in the temple praising God. Luke's story, in many ways, has come full circle. After Jesus' birth, Mary and Joseph go to the temple to present Jesus for his circumcision on the eighth day. And there they find both Simeon and Anna, devout followers of God, who are in the temple night and day. When we read their stories in Luke chapter 2, we are left with the feeling that God is at work and something marvelous is about to happen. Now as the disciples return to the temple and are continuously praising God, after Jesus' ascension, we end Luke's gospel with the same feeling. God is at work, and something marvelous is about to happen. So here's the question I want to explore today. Why were the disciples overwhelmed with joy after Jesus ascended? We will answer this by looking at three statements in the Apostles' Creed that are all connected to this moment. He ascended into heaven is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. First, he ascended into heaven. This seems obvious enough. The disciples see Jesus ascend, and he is taken from their sight. Now, we don't know the physics of how this ascension happened. Many of the Renaissance paintings show only the feet of Jesus as the rest of him has gone into the clouds. I don't think the specifics of the ascension matter as much as the reality that it has happened. For the disciples are overwhelmed with joy because the mission continues. It's kind of like the disciples finally got it in this passage, which, of course, is the last passage of Luke's gospel. Jesus explains to them how who he is and his entire ministry is a fulfillment of the scriptures. And he tells them that this message of repentance and forgiveness of sins must be preached to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And then Jesus tells the disciples, you are witnesses of these things. In other words, the disciples have a role to play in this this divine job. Perhaps they finally get it. What they get is this, the Holy Spirit can now come to them. Jesus tells them to stay in the city until they're furnished with heavenly power. Elsewhere, Jesus says to the disciples that unless he leaves them, he cannot send them the Holy Spirit. Fred Craddock says it this way, The disciples are not dejected and downcast by the departure of Christ, nor do they look longingly back to Galilee and the life they knew before he called them to follow him. Instead, they look for the power from on high, and in this hope they return to Jerusalem and to the temple, full of joy and blessing God. In a sense, this story is not really about the ascension. We have ten verses of scripture here, and the actual part about the ascension takes up half a verse. This story is about how God makes space for the other persons of God. In other words, the Son ascends so that the Holy Spirit can come onto the scene. And in Luke's way of understanding the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's role is empowering the church for its mission in the world. The mission of Jesus does not stop with his ascension. Rather, it has the potential to exponentially expand. And we know that's what it's going to do. The disciples will have the power of the Holy Spirit to begin the work of the church. And this work is nothing short of proclaiming the saving and reconciling work of God to the entire world. Since this mission continues and the disciples have a key role to play as witnesses, they aren't sad at all. They are overwhelmed with joy. Why else were the disciples overwhelmed with joy after Jesus ascended? I think it has to do with this reason. Now God can relate to everyone on earth. You see, for as long as Jesus was on the earth, God's mission in the world would be centered upon him. But now through the work of the Holy Spirit, God's God's work could spread throughout every believer and witness of Jesus. The Holy Spirit, in a sense, democratizes God's work and uses every follower of Jesus to do it. Jesus commissions the disciples then in this text, proclaiming that the repentance and forgiveness of sins is for all nations. God's plan all along has been to offer repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations. The intent of blessing Abraham was that he would be the father of many nations, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Ultimately, this is the purpose of God, to bring salvation to the entire world through Israel. And now that Jesus has ascended, the Creed says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus has now brought humanity into the heavenly control room. Jesus' position at the right hand is not about a location, about where Jesus' physical seat is. Rather, it is a description of the power that the ascended Jesus has. So the disciples are not sad and disappointed because this is the outworking of God's mission to relate to everyone on earth. What's interesting about this story is that Jesus ascended as he blessed the disciples. He didn't finish blessing them like a benediction in the worship service, say amen, and then was transported. No, while Jesus departed, he was still blessing humanity. And now the disciples are to do is to live out this blessing and offer it to others. They are blessed to be a blessing, carrying out God's mission of relating to everyone on earth. The final reason why I think the disciples were overwhelmed with joy is found in the next phrase of the Creed, that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Here is the great hope of the ascension. The ascension is only half of the story. For ultimately our hope is this, One day Jesus will return and make the rule of God complete. The ascension is like Act 1, and we are in the long intermission before Act 2, which is the second coming of Jesus. We don't focus enough on this place of hope that one day Jesus will return and set the world right. N.T. Wright says it this way in Surprised by Hope, what we are encouraged to grasp precisely through the ascension itself is that God's space and ours, heaven and earth, in other words, are though very different, not far away from one another. In other words, our hope is not that one day we will escape from this earth like so many of us think about as the end goal of the Christian life. No, our ultimate hope is justice, restoration, and completion. Our hope is not to flee earth. Our hope is that heaven and earth will meet one day when Jesus returns and Jesus will judge the earth and set it right. And T. Encourages us, to th- encourages us to think about Jesus' ascension and second coming in this way. He writes, at no point in the Gospels or Acts does anyone say anything remotely like, Jesus has gone into heaven, so let's be sure we can follow him. They say, rather, Jesus is in heaven ruling the whole world, and he will one day return to make that rule complete. You see, the story of Jesus' ascension and second coming is the story that shapes us as Christian people. We long for Jesus to come and make the world right. Jesus didn't ascend just so that we could follow him up. No, Jesus ascended to take his rightful place as Lord and to empower his disciples to spread the good news that God is bringing the world into right relationship with him. The only way we have any hope is because Jesus ascended and Jesus will return. Without Jesus ascending, the Holy Spirit's power would not be distributed and released in the world. And without Jesus coming again, the ascension would just be an escape from the earth. The story that shapes us, friends, is that Jesus came to this earth to fulfill God's mission of reconciling the world to God's very self. He lived among us, embodying what God's reign is supposed to look like. And the powers that be couldn't accept it, so they crucified him. And Jesus rose from the dead, showing that he has the power once and for all over death. He ascended into heaven so that his mission could be expanded into the entire world through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he will come again to complete the mission. This is the story that shapes us. My wife and I found those romantic comedies way too depressing. Their story was not compelling, it was depressing. And hopeless. So we moved on to superhero movies. For the story of superheroes is kind of our story as Christians. Good will always get the last word. Even when there is massive conflict and it seems like evil is winning the day, good always prevails. In a superhero story, what you see in the world is not all there is. Sort of like Jesus ruling now from the heavenly control room. And in a superhero story, good will always prevail. You don't know exactly when, but you can be confident that the good guys will win. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. This is the shape of our story, and we in turn can be overwhelmed with joy. For God is at work, and something marvelous is about to happen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.